Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Next Level. I'm JVL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. Before we get started, hit the like button, hit subscribe, give us five stars, more reviews, please. I would like to have some more reviews from you people. And then when you're done, come over to thebulwark.com where we give away all of the best writing and podcasts for free every day. And we also have some stuff that you can pay for if you'd like to give us money. Give us money. Yeah. Why not? Tim's got to eat. We've earned Tim's it. Tim's got to eat. We've earned it. So we had a live stream last night, the kind of thing we do for members only, for the people who actually <laughs> give us money. And uh, it was a little bit gloomy. We had really a diversity gloomy. of opinions on the indictment. <sighs> yes, Sarah? No, what? I'm still mad about this. Everybody, I, okay. Oh, you looked like, mad. People like me in the chat normally. <laughs> and everyone was like mad. mad at me in the chat. Yeah. And no yeah, one. Everyone was wearing black for some reason. It was like a funeral. <laughs> it was very <laughs> dour. Dour. Dour is what you mean, is how you pronounce Dour. that word. <laughs> Dour is very not like Dour. a French cologne. It's, uh, <laughs> okay, so the, it was Dour. First of all, I don't think you could do a second emergency podcast with like champagne drinking. Like we'd done the champagne drinking, the indictment had happened. I think that if people were just coming on so that everybody could do like a happy dance, that was sort of missing the point of what we really needed to be talking about, which was, okay, we have the details that we've been looking for. None of them are new. I was disappointed by how exactly what we've known for so many months it was. And I have some concerns about where we're landing on things politically. But uh, nobody wanted to hear that. And so Amanda, Amanda was where the people are. Amanda's the voice of the people, and that's great. So here's, here's the deal. So I, I'm going to ask you each for your opinion on this, and I'm going to just go ahead early and tell you that I have concluded that absolutely none of this matters. And I'll explain why after the fact and that it doesn't matter if the case is strong. It doesn't matter if the case is weak. It doesn't matter if this indictment was brought or not brought. We are in full JVL nihilist for this. But because of that, it actually takes you to a happy place. Because if none of this matters, then you might as well just let the legal process lay back and let the legal process work its magic. And I'll give you the full case for that afterwards. You know, oddly enough, this is a thing that you could read slightly about at even greater length in my newsletter, The Triad by JVL. Go subscribe for it at thebulwark.com. So, Sarah, I will let you start first. You make the case for why you're worried, because you, you made, I think, very eloquently last night and in a way which I find very convincing. So my concerns are, are basically political, and it's, it's PR and optics, right? It's the story and how it is shaped. And it's born out of what I saw happen to the Mueller report and complete and total exoneration when that is absolutely not what was in the Mueller report. It was, there was like 10 counts of obstruction of justice. The only reason they couldn't indict is because he was a sitting president. Probably would have indicted him. In fact, almost assuredly would have invited. I was on the circus with Andrew Weissman who prosecuted that case on Friday and their hands were literally tied. And I understand people's desire. Well, not for literally, unless it was Michael Cohen. <laughs> no, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, Mike, did is... Michael Cohen no, take I'm, the rope out? Okay, I'm, I'm glad you just did that to me because my kids have started using the word literally and they use it wrong all the time. And I'm like, they're getting this from me. They're getting yeah, it from me. They're president, their mother. <laughs> it's terrible because I'm good, I'm good with grammar. Uh, but the literally thing, it's, I use it as an emphasis word as opposed to literally for what it's for. Anyway, thank you for that. So my concern is what I'm seeing from the voters and what I'm seeing from the polling and what I'm seeing is the increasing likelihood of Donald Trump being uh, the Republican nominee and the way that this case and I think people's general sense, not that it is weak, 
Although I do think that's where we got yesterday. But I, before this, I was kind of making a distinction between a weak case and an unserious case, like, or a less serious case than, let's say, coup doing and another version of coup doing, which is go find me votes that don't exist, right? So like those cases, I very badly want Trump to be indicted on and I want those to be impactful and meaningful. And to the extent that this might dilute that impact and and sort of create a shadow that those exist in, I'm concerned about that. But nobody wanted to hear that perspective last night and that's fine. I will say I slept on it and I'm interested in your nihilistic position a little bit, JVL, because I did start to think to myself this morning. I said, self, if this thing doesn't go to trial until 2024. December is the next court date. The December when is the I next saw court December date. come in, I was like, what month are we in? I, like, I yeah. literally pulled out my phone and looked at the calendar and I was like, right, April. So that's two months for the Iowa caucus. It is. But my guess is, is that there's other cases that happen here. And so I actually started to think what's very possible as a dynamic is that this case quickly recedes. And other cases become dominant. And I may still have cause to worry about how this ultimately shaded things, but I'm not sure. Like, he will not be prosecuted for this in a time that it involves the election. Like, it's all going to be passed. And I think we've learned a few things from this, like the rally around Trump effect is real. These indictments are probably not going to knock him down. And so his opponents, as they rally around him, should learn that this is not the right strategy, right? And so I'm going to try to turn my frown upside down by giving Aww. myself the perspective that this might not matter as much as I was originally thinking and that actually the lessons that we learn from them, we may learn early enough to actually put into some good use or or his opponents might. That's where I will leave things. Timothy? So I did think it was a gloomy live stream last night, but I think that the instinct of Bill Crystal and Sarah Bill was maybe, I just more directly on this point in particular, but Sarah was echoing it, that we shouldn't be so sanguine about things that might help Donald Trump become president, right? Like anything that helps Donald Trump become president, even incrementally, is bad, and we should oppose it, and we should be worried about it, and we should be thinking about ways to combat that and to weaken the chances that he becomes president again, since that is, you know, the number one, two, and three threat that we face. I concur with that. Where I parted ways a bit from the group's analysis was just that, are we sure? Like, I just think that this certainty that this helps Trump, you know, is is really wrongheaded. Tell me more. Sure. Yes, we're sure that right now, today, his poll numbers vis-a-vis -vis Ron DeSantis are better. Yes. So that is true. And so that is bad in the micro. But in the macro, we have some counter evidence, right? Most specifically, Donald Trump's loss in 2020, but also in the midterms. That, like, there is a plurality of people in this country that are done with the crazy. And I just am not convinced that Donald Trump getting indicted, Donald Trump having to go to court, Donald Trump lying, Donald Trump having Joker, Joe Tapioca on TV, like defending him, everybody having to relive and rehash all of Donald Trump's crimes and corruptions helps him in the end. I, oh, I agree with that, though. Are you talking about the primary or the general, though? You're Tom? talking about the general election. You're not talking about the primary. And I, all I'm saying is, in this world, in this election, we're going to play things out in stages. And every yep. stage is an opportunity to stop Donald Trump. Like the biggest opportunity to stop Donald Trump so that we're not rolling the dice yep. on our democracies in the Republican primary. And him coming in from a very flat-footed, weakest he's ever been position to gather steam and also like 
nothing is crazier to me than the extent to which we have actually seen this movie before the, and nobody is behaving differently. So I'm starting to get anxious, very anxious, that there's actually not somebody who's capable of stepping up. Okay, and- but can I just push back on this about the primary, though? But my, I guess my point is we said on this podcast many times, I think, over the past year when doing our way too early assessment of Ron DeSantis, yeah. like there are a lot of pitfalls ahead of, for him. Sure. A- and this was one of them. Yep. Like inevitably, these guys were going to have to go toe to toe with him. And like, if, if it wasn't about Alvin Bragg, it was going to be about something else, right? And like, there are a million things that are going to come up between now and next February when the voting starts. And if nobody has the support, the charisma, the message to beat him, then like, why are we wetting our panties about it? I, you know, I don't know. It's not Alvin Bragg that's like going to make or break whether Donald Trump wins his primary, I don't think. It's whether or not one of these other guys is able to make the case that they're better off. And, and I, you know, again, maybe there's no way to beat Donald Trump, right? Maybe he's just unbeatable in a Republican primary. I don't, I don't know that. I don't think that that's true, but like just this notion that it definitely helps him that he's under these indictments and he's out there, as Sarah said, like doing an oatmeal mush press conference last night. I just, maybe that's true. I just don't know that it's true. One of these guys has to figure out a way to beat them. And I don't know that any of us who are all worrying about it on MSNBC panels and at the bulwark and on Substack, you know, it's a bunch of college educated white people which is like the the best group for Democrats, like all rending each other's garments about how non-college MAGA white people are going to react to the news. And I just, I don't know that we have control over that. We don't. Ron DeSantis maybe has some control. He does. We, we don't have control over it. But I think what I was reacting to is like, when we were on the circus, I got asked this. It was like, how did you feel when you heard the news? Sure. And I said, I had mixed emotions because I had actually, when I saw that this jury was going out on hiatus. I was quite relieved because I thought one of the other cases might drop first. So you're right. I have no control over which case happens first. But like, if you gave me my druthers, and nobody can control this, that's true. But I guess I just like, there are ways that things could happen that are worse for Donald Trump, and there are ways things could happen that are better for Donald Trump. And I think this indictment being the first indictment for him is more helpful than hurtful. Well, can we just play that out though? What if it was the reverse? Are we sh- again like, are we sure that's the case? Like, what if Georgia came first? Then Alvin Bragg throws the Stormy Daniels thing on top, and then people are like, oh, wow, they really are targeting him. Actually, they had the serious one first, and now it's the stupid one second, so to speak. I don't think this is stupid, but, but just so to speak. So, super fair point. And I've been thinking about this a lot, but here's the reason I think it's different. I think that a whole bunch of people on right-wing media, so, and let's, there's our layers to the right-wing media. There is a section of MAGA media that a lot of people here will never see because they don't even, it's like barely visible, right? And it is intense and they are energized by this and they believe that the election was stolen and they would be deeply energized by a January 6th indictment as well. But Lindsey Graham doesn't go on Fox News and cry. And Ben Shapiro doesn't tell all of his people that this is a miscarriage of justice. I would say there's a big chunk, and the chunk is, it's the maybe Trumpers and the move on Trumpers, right? You need to consolidate those people behind somebody else. They're the people, because they're being told by all the right-wing talkers, including Mitt Romney last night, that this is a weak case, that this is about being out to get Donald Trump, and there is a big piece of psychology on the right. And I just, let me say this clearly, that says, if they want to work this hard to get Donald Trump, it's because they must be scared of him. And your point, I, I can see like, well, maybe that happens with all of them. But like this one, I just think that the the histrionics coming from all the talkers on the right and the elected officials creates the sense of 
they're out to get him. This is unserious. This wouldn't have been brought against anybody else. And I don't think those people could have made that case about the January 6th one. I think that would have been, put Ben Shapiro in a much tougher place. Rich Lowry, baseball crank, in a much tougher place. I disagree entirely. Okay, so we will see whether or not this is true. But if you think that they would all react exact same way to Trump being indicted for January 6th and for the Georgia thing, if you think or that. Or the documents, right? Or the documents. Or the Mar-a-Lago documents. I think you guys are both going to win this one because what's going to happen is that Fonnie Willis is going to indict him here next and Ben Shapiro and Angry Baseball Head are going to be like, well, if it wasn't for that Alvin Bragg <laughs> indictment that really poisoned the well for me, I might have been able to come around on I this. I was thing. radicalized now, by Alvin Bragg. I, yeah, now you can see <laughs> that these people are just out to get him again. I, I, there always would be an excuse, I think. Right? I mean, there always has been an excuse. They could have got rid of him after January 6th if January 6th was the radical. See, here's the, was, you know. the thing I, I, I ask you, Sarah. Look back on the polling among Republican voters on January 6th by the time we got to the impeachment. And by the time we got to impeachment, Republican voters were, what, 86% against it? Right. And this yes. this is not like a legal case. You know, this is like a, a two bit political thing for whether or not you can, you know, pass this thing after this guy. There's basically no practical you know, consequences of it. It has just happened. Everybody lived through it. It was unbelievably dramatic and they still didn't want it, which is why I don't think it is possible to have an indictment that either Republican voters or anybody in conservatism, Inc. and in conservative media would ever say, you know, this is a pretty strong case, actually. This is serious stuff. Well, I just don't think that that exists. Mm-hmm. And and so my, my it doesn't matter case comes from, A, this is all going to recede, as we said, like into the background. We're going to have, you know, by next week, he will have, Donald Trump will have truthed out that Ron DeSantis is Disney's bitch or something. And everybody will be laughing about that, right? Or he'll say that when he's president, he's going to kick Finland out of NATO. And people will be like, oh, you can't. And we'll just be on to the next thing. And yeah. because this is becomes a technical conversation about motions to dismiss and whether or not there's, you know, the state of New York has the, the standing to be concerned with a federal violation. And if we're going to wind up with an indictment period at some point, which I think we're probably likely to then we would still get to this place where everybody was forced to rally around Trump because there was an indictment. So long as there was going to be an indictment, it doesn't matter which one it was, because none of these people who, who are defending are capable of making the distinctions. I, I mentioned this last night. I listened because I was a little bit late on the David French episode of The Focus Group, and he told this story about how he was down in Kentucky after the tornadoes, volunteering with Samaritan's Purse, and he and this, this lovely, lovely woman were working hard together and trying to salvage people's possessions, people had had their lives destroyed, and he just he just thought this woman was the most wonderful, loving, God-fearing gal he'd ever met, and she was just a tremendous human being. And then she turned to him and said, you know, they sent this thing to get the red state. I am sorry. I do not believe that that woman is capable of looking at two different indictments and saying, well, you know, I really think this is a stretch on this one because it was a misdemeanor. It really should be a state misdemeanor. And this district attorney is trying to Trump because he's there trying are to some tie people this other- who are capable. There are some people who are. No, we they, hear that, from them. Sarah hears from them. No, those people write for Vox. Those people are actually on the left. And this is the weirdness of this. The weird asymmetry is that you have a ton of people who are anti-Trump who are looking at this in good faith and trying to say, 
gee, I don't, I don't really know about this. I think, but you don't have the converse of that. On the other side, there is no such thing as actually there's this Republican senator who's going to come out and say, aside from Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney's statement I thought was actually quite responsible and quite good. There was one line I didn't like in it, but on the whole, it was not a total exoneration. It was like, this man is unfit for office. There are dangers in going down this road. And he was, but you know, like aside from Mitt Romney and Asa Hutchinson, that's it. Okay, I really want to talk, to talk about, about the lady parts, Wisconsin. All right, let, let's go out to let's go out to Wisconsin first. Judge Protasewitz. Protasewitz. Judge P. Protasewitz. Judge P, who was projected to maybe win a three or four point victory, who had the race called very early, wound up winning by eleven. Kind of a big deal because it signals maybe the end of gerrymandering in Wisconsin. There was I saw this stat somewhere about how. Republicans control something like 65% of the statewide offices in the legislature, even though they've they... only won three of the last 17 <laughs> statewide elections, <laughs> which is just astonishing minority rule. Do you guys have thoughts about this? Before? I have a bunch of thoughts. Tim, you yeah. haven't gotten to talk yet. Yeah, you talk more. Oh, all right, great. I, hey, I was like, I, was so, pr- I, know, yeah, I yeah. was so proud. I was sitting there myself looking at the clock. I'm like, man, 17 minutes in, I've barely talked. I don't know. Can I handle this? Can I wait any longer? Um, so... My thoughts are this. Number one, I think that I've been a long time arguer of the fact that there are Obama-Trump voters that really don't like the new abortion regime and that are going to be pretty important. And when we think about these swing voters, oftentimes we think about our people, the Cucks, the Romney, Biden voters, right? And the suburban voters, suburban college-educated voters. But there are working-class, secular non-college, white working class voters that went along with Trump and that they are capable of being persuaded and they're being persuaded on this issue. I think there are other things at play too. There was, you know, turnout and energy among the Democratic coalition. There was there was energy on both sides, but young people turning out. But, but I just think this is underplayed and it's going to be really tough. And Ron DeSantis down there passed a six-week abortion ban, which kind of gets overshadowed by the Trump news. But boy, I, I just don't see how a six-week abortion ban plays among, you know, these gettable Obama-Trump voters. I think you can see that up there. So I I think that's the biggest takeaway for me. The next biggest being the gerrymandering, which we covered. And then you get to an electoral map, right, where Wisconsin is just really, really important. Like if Michigan's off the map, which seems like it is, if the Republicans don't win Wisconsin, they have to win Georgia and Arizona. Georgia and Arizona aren't looking very great. So I don't know. I just think you can overanalyze these random Supreme Court races, but I just think it's important to look at the fact that that between abortion and Trump, like Trump seems pretty much disqualifying in Georgia and Arizona. Abortion seems pretty a pretty tough sell in Wisconsin and Michigan. And those two things working together make the map really, really hard for Republicans right now. Tim, doesn't Trump have the leeway to run away from a six-week ban, though? Yes. Right? I mean, in a weird way, this is... Yeah. The idea that like, oh, you guys want to run against Trump, which drives me crazy because we really don't want to. Was it last week's or two weeks ago that I'm no longer convinced that DeSantis is is a better general election candidate? Gun to my head, I think so. But because this is one of those issues, what we saw in Wisconsin, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Sarah? I agree with everything Tim said, so I'm just going to take a different – since I'm already making people mad with my takes, I'm just going to roll with this. Yes. Uh, Give in to the hate. Yeah, yeah, Just if everybody – Go ahead. Just send me all your hate mail. Do you know what, to me, my first thought was when I saw her engaging in this blowout victory in Wisconsin? I was like, you guys could have had a Senate seat. You could have had a Senate seat. You know what? You pick if you picked somebody that didn't get through the defund the police, uh, soft on crime, they haven't been able to hang that. Ron Johnson's gone. And I was just 
mad about it. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm happy about it. I think the political team down there in Wisconsin that does the organizing is super strong. And I think that the way that they are gerrymandered in Wisconsin is bananas. I saw Ali Alexander. He tweeted, like, there goes the Wisconsin Supreme Court or something. Without that, the path to 270 is, is almost impossible. And it was like, we can't steal Wisconsin with judges. We have no chance to win. (laughs) That's right. And so the reason, one of the reasons I'm elated about Wisconsin, you know, I did good on abortion and gerrymandering, but really it it is about ensuring that this guy who was running was a big, you know, election denier, tried to help Trump in 2020 overturn things. And keeping people like that away from these seats is extraordinarily important for the just like general fundamental health of democracy. And so that win was important for those reasons. One other fun fact, just on when you're looking at explanations for why these wins happen, and and I know that I just get Sarah excited whenever I'm talking about persuasion, persuasion, not just turnout. Yep. If you, I, I love this fact. If you take away Dane County's votes, if you take Protosawitz's Dane County votes away, that's Matt, that's where Madison is. So that's where if you're like, oh, a lot of excitement, young voters, young women, young voters, young women turned out, no doubt. But if you take away all 180,000 votes of hers, still wins. Still wins. Because she persuades in the wild counties. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, she did better than Biden even, better than Evers among college-educated suburbs and non-college white working class out in the rest of the state. Yeah. Yep. Tim, you wanted to talk a little bit about the Chicago mayor's race. I wanted to mention this because when you were gone, I forget, you might have been sicky sick a couple, maybe a month or two ago when the first round of the mayor's race went through and Sarah and I did a solo podcast and we talked about how Lightfoot loses, you know, how it was the latest example of how people in these big cities are upset at, you know, defund, upset at rising crime, upset at issues. And, you know, I, I think we implied, I didn't say for sure, but kind of implied that that is a good sign for Vallis, right? Who was the, Paul Vallis was the more centrist, you know, school reform, white man, candidate running against a black younger Brandon Johnson, who was running, who was, you know, maybe defund curious, right? Soft, called soft defund. And, um, and Johnson ends up winning last night in Chicago, close race, but he's going to end up winning by three or four points. So I called So I wanted some pundit accountability on this. I called at a friend that was working on the Vallis campaign and called him and just was like, what, ha- what what's your take on what happened? And I think that when you look at these races, Johnson, there's an interesting lesson learned, right? The right doesn't seem to be learning anything from their losses recently. The progressives are learning from their losses. Johnson, who had had kind of a Mandela-Barnes-ish issue, right? Like he had gone to fund harder originally, softened it up. Now, that didn't work quite as well for Mandela in a swing state, but in Chicago, the electorate's different. And he really softened it. He insisted he's going to take crime seriously, claimed he's going to hire more detectives, said he wasn't going to take one penny away. He's the son of a pastor, very good speaker, you know, uh, kind of modulated his view on on property taxes and on kind of the more socialist sort of rhetoric that, that he had in his past. And, you know, that's enough to get through when you compare, when you then turn the other guy and say, no, he's MAGA, actually. This guy was MAGA. And and Vallis was vulnerable to that because he had done, you know, some events with conservative groups that were anti-trans, anti-woke, et cetera. And so Johnson ends up doing well with black voters and with suburban whites. I, a, I wanted to follow up to a little a pundit accountability, but it's interesting to see kind of the progs sort of learning from where the oversteps are and saying, okay, hey, how can we get more progressive folks in in these places, you know, without turning off the gettable you know, gettable voters, both older black voters and college-educated white voters. So I, I thought it was an interesting result last night. And it will be interesting to watch, like, the compare contrast between now we've got Eric Adams in New York, London Breed in San Francisco, very different style, 
than Johnson and Chicago. So we'll get a little bit of a, you know, real life political science test. Sarah, is it fair to say, or is this just my reflexive anti-Republicanism? Is it fair to say that the Republican Party seems to confront losses with double downs, whereas the Democrats even confront wins with introspection and gosh, that was closer than it should have been. And what do we need to do differently? And, you know, Biden has run very hard against defund the police and stuff. Uh, he did that thing in D.C. a couple weeks ago about, you know, being tougher on crime. Is it fair, Sarah, to say that it looks like the Republicans just keep doubling down no matter what? This is, I just look at the DeSantis constitutional carry in the six-week ban for a guy who thinks he's running for president. And I don't know, man. It, uh, it looks like one party is heading towards the middle and the other party keeps heading out towards the, the fringe. Yeah, I mean, this is a function of, of voters, right? And so one of the things, I tweeted this this morning, but I, I, I say this a lot and I've probably said it on this podcast, which is, the gap between what base Republican voters want and what independent swing voters will tolerate has gotten very wide. And it sort of gets wider all the time. And so Republicans are actually, part of the big problem for them is that their voters, right, want the base voters, like, you got to go really far to satisfy them. And that's what Ron DeSantis is doing right now, right? Ron DeSantis is basically being like, I never get to run a general election unless I win this primary. And to win this primary, I need a six-week abortion ban. I need open carry. I need everything is woke. Like, I got to be on Donald Trump's side and hope that some exogenous event takes him out and I'm the next in line. And like, you know, you can just see what DeSantis has to do. And, and I, you saw this predicament for the 2022 slate of candidates where they had to go to win a primary, hard election denialism and hard anti-abortion. And like, they couldn't pivot out of it, the general. Why don't Democrats have that problem with their base? Sorry, I should say, why do they have that problem to a lesser extent with their base, right? Because every every political party has that problem with their base. and But it does seem like it's not same, same. I just don't think the gap's as big. Like, the reason I talk about the gap, right, is I just think that the, the gap is like, it used to be, everybody has to do this, right? Everybody pivots in the general election, softens things that they say. But to go from, like, abortion should be illegal after six weeks to, like, something where the voters are, like, at 15 weeks, like, that's hard. Like, they'll hang you with it. And, like, it's just harder to pivot out of. And I would say that Democratic voters are, are like, it's a softer pivot now to say, take previously defund the police positions and turn them into, look, we need to think about how we reform police. Like, I, I think that Democrats have like learned a lesson on that one. That was like a hard, that was like a real problem for them. And so they're figuring out how to work that one. I think there are two reasons for that. One is just like the diversity of the de Democratic coalition, both in everything like race, ideology, education level, like the Republican coalition is much more homogeneous. So that's one reason why Democrats have a little bit more leeway on that. The other one is Democratic voters like stereotypical Whole Foods, like the core of their base, right? These yeah. The Whole Foods whites. I asked the guy uh, who I talked to on the Vallis campaign, I was like, how did Vallis or Johnson do among Whole Foods white people? And he was like, Johnson did better in those precincts, right? But those same voters voted for Biden, right? And I think that there's a lot of pragmatism happening among that part of the Democratic coalition where they will go pretty far left if they feel like they can, you know, but they also don't want the MAGA insane people to be running. And so... I think that there's some of that in Republican voters, too. And you know, every coalition has people who vote, you know, practically and pragmatically. But I just think that there's a much bigger block. And you saw that in 20, the people who jumped from Warren to Pete, to Klobuchar, to Biden in the end. I agree with that.
All right, well, let's get to the thing we all really want to talk about, which is the triumphant uh, We Are the Champions LSU Lady Tigers. Big for you, Tim. I'm sorry LSU. you couldn't be in New Orleans to celebrate with. Not quite there yet. So, Tim, please, why don't you start by talking about college women's basketball? And Sarah, you can chime in in a little bit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ouch. I do have a bunch of takes, but fine, fine. No, don't no, kill no, me. No, Sarah, no, you no, go no, first. No, no, no. I don't like to be tokenized like that. And also, <laughs> okay. let's be real here. I wasn't following women's basketball or any basketball in March Madness until JVL told me about Caitlin Clark and I and then sent me a bunch of stuff about Caitlin Clark. And then I decided I was the biggest Caitlin Clark stand on the planet. So let's let's go. So here is, I think, the big tip before we get into the drama and like whether there's racism, misogyny and the like Angel Reese versus for people that didn't follow that final was an Iowa Hawkeyes team that has this woman, Caitlin Clark, who is unbelievable. She's like the Steph Curry of women's basketball. She's shooting threes from 30 feet out like she has her handle is amazing. She's just marvelous to watch. And they're going against an LSU team that was, you know, largely black women that also had a lot of great players, including this Angel Reese, who's really, you know, kind of a tall, more of a the forward center type. And there's a lot of trash talking happening. And so then there's a big discourse about the trash talking. So we'll get to that in a second. But but just first on the women's college basketball, my main takeaway before the discourse was I think we're headed to a path where college basketball, it's like tennis where women's college basketball ends up being kind of on par with men's. And the reason for that is I just, I watched this tournament more than I had any women's basketball tournament. And there's just more women playing basketball. The talent is so much better. The nature of the game now where people can shoot these threes and open up the court has changed the type of play and make it more watchable more enjoyable to watch. Meanwhile, on the men's side, a lot of the good players skip college now and just go straight to the pros. They can't do that in women's. And so you have, it was just a much more watchable women's tournament. And anecdotally, I didn't text Sarah. JVL's texting Sarah, but this is in my life. I got way more texts about Caitlin Clark, South Carolina, LSU women's than I did about the men's tournament this year. And I think that that was anecdotally, a lot of people felt that way. That's like my big picture take on, on women's best one. Caitlin deserves a lot of credit for that, despite the fact that she ended up finishing second go Tigers and is not going to be invited to the White House. Sarah, Tim says that women's basketball is getting more watchable. What do you think of that as a compliment? I was going to give Tim a hard time. The NBA is also getting more watchable, by the way, but go ahead. We can make it misogynistic. (laughs) Anyone who, I I dare you to watch a Pat Summit 1992 Tennessee Volunteers (laughs) game and then go watch the LSU Iowa game and tell me whether it's sexist to say it's getting more watchable, but go ahead. I don't know. All I know is that when I started watching Caitlin Clark, and I probably haven't watched women's basketball like since Pat Summit's time. (laughs) And and I just want to say something about myself because we we make this joke a lot about me in sports, but I just want to, like, Sports were such an important part of my life, and I believed so strongly in women's sports, and I was always mad that people would be crappy about women's sports. And a lot of times, I've heard Tim have a riff on women's sports that's crappy, but you know what? He's going through what a lot of men go through, which is the, I have a daughter now, and I love sports. My dad, my dad was always taking me to see women's golf tournaments. Like he really wanted me to Girl like, dad. yeah, see these women. And I did like my, I remember I did a big report about women's sports. I did my speech, my senior like speech that you have to give in front of the whole school about women's sports and what it did for me. And so anyway, I've always hated the way people talk about women's sports, but yet I do this about lesbian bars too. I'm always mad. There's no lesbian bars. You know who doesn't go to lesbian bars? Me. You know who doesn't watch <laughs> women's sports? Me. Like, it's terrible. Like, I'm supposed to, I'm this big advocate, but like, I don't do it. I should be upfront about that. But JBL gave me this huge gift by telling me about Caitlin Clark, because you know what I did? I made time for it. I started following it. I made time for it. And I remembered how much joy there is in rooting for somebody. And so I was so excited to watch 
her play and to watch Iowa play. I had my kid with me and we were jumping around and it was a really exciting first half. The refs were garbage. Terrible refs. And I want to say something. And to to me, the most misogynistic thing in all of this, all the discourse, people are missing the way that the refs were policing. Because I was watching, I ended up watching the men's tournament too towards the end and just, I got into all of it. The level of physicality they let the men play with that they were not letting these women play with makes me crazy. Like, nothing has ever made me angry. I'm always like, why is women's lacrosse so stupid with the little sticks that they hold right in front of their face when the men are allowed to, like, wear gear and hit each other? Yeah, like, that's unfair. I, it is. <laughs> Our daughters ought to be able to beat the crap out of each other in middle school, too. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm, yes. <laughs> if that's the sport, that's the sport. Uh, I don't know why you're mocking me on this. So, I agree with Sarah. Yeah. And so I thought the games were were so fun. But I was watching them get policed by these refs in terms of the physicality and, like, getting ticky-tacky stuff like it wasn't a championship game. And I actually thought that, that was the most genuinely offensive part. That technical they called on on Caitlin Clark was just an embarrassment. And I, I saw Caitlin Clark do an interview on ESPN this morning. And you know what she said? She's like, you know... Good for Angel Reese for the trash talking. She's like, you know what I want? She's like, nobody gets mad at the men for trash talking. She's like, we want to be out there. We want to play really hard. We want to show emotion and like have a great time. And the fans want to see that. And so like, let her talk and like, let's, you know, let us do that. And I was like, yes. Like, it's not, not really trash talking. I'm not saying sitting here being like, boy, trash talking is the essence of the game. It's not. But like the idea of playing with emotion and being able to be physical and be all in it and like go really hard and have it matter a lot, like they deserved that. And I thought that the racial discourse that took over was really unfortunate because I actually thought there was a piece of discourse around the way that women's basketball was being policed on the physicality and the way it was being policed just in general of like you guys shouldn't be trash talking is all was all really frustrating. I just want to just, just chime in because this is basically my take, but just to put a finer point on it. Look, there's always going to be some people who are racist. And the fact that, like, you know, Dave Portnoy is out there tweeting, oh, Angel Reese, you're a piece of shit or whatever. Like, would he have really tweeted that about Caitlin Clark? Probably not, right? So there is some racism. So I don't want to say there's none. But I think that the acute thing is it was misogyny because yeah. I can tell you this at least because it's by, you know, you can only know your own feelings. And this is my personal feelings. I'm rooting for LSU. I love trash talk when it's the LSU men. And when Angel is like waving her hand in front of doing the John Cena thing right in front of Caitlin's face, right at the loss, I, I felt myself I, like a little cringe. And then I thought into myself, I was like, wait, is this like internalized racism? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, do you know what I think it really is? It's like I felt bad for Caitlin Clark. Well, that's Caitlin Clark's thing. Yeah. Caitlin Clark's thing is the John Cena thing. Yeah, she was doing it's the same thing Caitlin Clark did. But I was feeling I felt that way when Caitlin was doing it to other girls too. What I'm saying is I felt bad for the women, like they can't take trash talk. Like this was my misogyny. I was like, oh, if Toulouse is out there, I wouldn't want her. Like I feel like that that I feel like part of the discourse is that, right? Like if it's a man shit talking another man, everybody's like, yeah, they can take it. But the two women, anyway. Maybe that's just me, but I, I felt like that people went straight to the race stuff. There is a racial element to it, but that part of why people get so caught, oh, you should be a good sportswoman, you know, is because it feels weird to see a woman get shit talked. There is only one piece of this that I think makes it slightly different, which is that it is weird to taunt somebody at the end of a game when you've won. 
that's a thing which is a little a little weird. Now, in this case, I'm entirely on Angel Reese's side because Caitlin Clark is a total like shit talker constantly and everybody yes. celebrates. Everyone makes it. It's like she's John McEnroe. They love it. She's like a lovable scamp. Look how horrible yeah. she is to these other girls as she's beating them. <laughs> and I don't like that. She was shit talking the whole South Carolina game. And by the way, it was brilliant. The South Carolina game was much better than the LSU game just as a watchable thing. It was beautiful. It was like beautiful basketball. And But she was shit talking the whole game. I do not love trash talk. I'm more of a Julius Irving guy than a Larry Bird guy. You know, I, I like guys who Clyde the Glide Drexler carries himself with dignity. But that said, I don't get like all upset about it. And I was certainly not upset that Angel Reese did it in retaliation. The only thing that I think maybe a little bit questionable is like, yeah, OK, well, you just won. Like, you know, it's fine to do it during the game. But, you know, you've just won the championship. You don't need to, <laughs> you know, scoreboard. That's all. But overall, I'm in favor of it. This is so good for women's college basketball, actually, kind of. I mean, it's sad for our culture, but it's good that it's yeah. big enough that we can have a, a narrative discourse about it. It's so good. Did you see, hold on, my favorite racial thing, like on the positive side of our racial differences, celebrating? Oh, my God, Did it's you see so the TikTok funny. No. It showed the Iowa locker room. And it was all these white girls. They're singing High School Musical all together as a team. And then it shows the LSU locker room and they're rapping to Boozy Badass. And like all the girls are like, you know, twerking and getting down. It is so, and it's just like a tale of two cultures. And it was, it was so good. I want to make one more plug for this. I watched the Women's Final Four through, because I stream everything. We don't do cable. And ESPN gave you three feeds for it. I watched the Deanna Taurasi and Sue Bird feed, which I had never seen before, and I didn't know what it was. I was just curious. And it is the two of them sitting in big black leather easy chairs drinking, I think, I'm assuming they're drinking like cocktails, but just the two of them watching the game and doing sort of commentary about the game, but sort of just talking about basketball and life and bringing in guests. Like, you know, Cheryl Swoops came by for 10 minutes to talk and go over. And it was so good. And I immediately thought, like, every basketball game should have a feed like this if you can have two people like having Chuck and Kenny the Jet together doing it, right? Because Bird and Tarasi together were unbelievably entertaining, and it was the most entertaining way I've ever watched any basketball game and a triumph of the format. I want more of it. I will just say, when I started watching the game, I was very much in Iowa's camp. But I also occurred to me, like, I hadn't watched LSU play. And the second I started watching them, I, I, there was a part of me that was like, why has everybody been talking about Iowa? Like, LSU was unreal. But also, LSU's coach was a nightmare. This woman, she was on the court. Yeah, she was ridiculous. Kim Mulkey. She was, like, on the Wearing court. Great, and I thought I, she with was, her tiger stripe outfit and her high heels. It's a character. That's great. She looked like classy <laughs> Freddie Blassie. I want Tyler to dress as her for Halloween when we move to Louisiana. But you know what I liked about it? So, like, these characters, right? I was thinking about how much the sports, like, it take. You need characters for people to get behind. You need, like, to have the arguments. And I was so happy for women's basketball. And I'm going to, like, make a promise like, we're going to start, this is, we're going to watch this now. No, we are. All of us. We're going to be people who talk about women's college basketball. <sighs> no, I don't mean to burst your balloon, but I don't believe you at all. The reason I don't believe you, Sarah, is because you and I bought season tickets for a, a major league baseball team together. And we went to, over the course of a season, one game together. Well, we bought those tickets so we could go to the World Series. Dude, I, I will believe that you watch women's basketball next season when you produce um, the timesheet where fine, you have logged fine. all of your game hours. That's I all. am. I'm hey, in. everybody, thanks for hanging out with us. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button. Come over and join us at thebullwork.com. Sign up for my newsletter. It's very good. Uh, listen to Charlie Sykes' podcast. It's very good. Do all the things. Bye.
Go Tigers.